Hey everyone, this is Max, and I just want to give you some context for what you're about to hear. This is the second segment from the podcast episode, which we released last month, the Israeli election episode. Um, as you might recall, the first segment on the Israeli election was uh, quite long, so we decided to split it into two and release them at different times. Um, and then we ran into a few issues with editing the episode and especially the sound quality, uh, which you might have noticed. We're still working on all that, so stay with us. But now we figured all that out, and so we're back at it. And we want you to hear this conversation we had about this book, Jihad, Radicalism, and the New Atheism by Muhammad Hassan Khalil. We think it's a very interesting conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. So that's why we talk about like it being the second segment in the beginning. Do not be alarmed. You did not miss the first segment. The first segment was the Israeli election, which, as far as I know, has not been figured out yet. They're still working on it. I'm sure it's all going to work out great in the end for everyone. So... Enjoy this conversation, the second segment, and we have a new episode coming out soon that I'm really excited about too. So enjoy. Tired of this bullshit. Now I'm on the down low. Creeping while you're sleeping. Trick or treating with my lights slow. Skull cap gloves tight. Loading up the nine glock. Strolling through the spring creek. Looking for your chilling spot. You gonna be a victim to a Tommy Wright homicide. DLE, you can't survive. No way you can stay alive. For the second segment, I wanted to talk about this book that I read and it raised all sorts of really interesting issues that I think we could sink our teeth into. The book is called Jihad Radicalism and the New Atheism. It's by a professor named Muhammad Hassan Khalil. He's a professor at Michigan State University. He's from Dearborn. And so apparently I looked at his CV. So he's like from Michigan. He went to University of Michigan for his education. Now he's at uh, Michigan State. He wrote this book. It came out last year. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to tell you pretty briefly what the book's argument is. It's very clearly, uh, succinctly written, and it's very well done in terms of laying out the stakes and what he's trying to do. Uh, so that shouldn't be too hard to explain the book's argument. And then we're going to talk about a few issues that it raises or so, ways that can kind of we can use it to clarify certain vexing issues um, around not only around Islam and its relationship to vi political violence. Um, but also the way we talk about religion in general in secular societies. The book itself has three sections. It's mainly a response to the this phenomenon called new atheism, which is people like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Ayan Hirsi Ali, uh, the late Chris Hitchens, these kinds of people who have launched a, a critique based on reason, they say. A, a crusade. Yeah, a crusade against against religion in general. Um, saying that this is all, you know, this is not based on the same kind of evidentiary standards that we bring to bear on other kinds of beliefs. And it shouldn't be, it sh there should be no sacred cows. You know, we should subject all kinds of beliefs to the same standards and the scientific method. And a big focus of their ire and critique has been on Islam. And so, so this book is kind of a response to them, but that's actually the third section of the book. So he builds up quite an argument um, it's all goes back to 9-11, which is, you know, it's we're recording today um, on the anniversary of 9-11. So it, it feels very. Apt. Which means you might hear this by 9-11. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So the first the first section talks about, you know, war, jihad, martyrdom, these key topics in the Muslim tradition. 
like in the foundational documents, in the Quran and Hadiths, and then in the Islamic tradition of jurisprudence, which is obviously like very, very important, um, like Sharia law and fatwas and all these terms that we kind of hear about in mainstream discourse, but maybe people don't quite understand what they are. So the first book kind of, and you would probably know a lot about this kind of stuff. It talks about like the Quran, for example. There's different, the Quran was revealed to Muhammad prophet over a long period of time. And it traces not only his revelations, but also the early history of the Muslim community. And so he has different things to say about opponents of Islam at different times. He, he Muhammad, Muhammad, or he... Okay. Uh, so, so Muhammad, so there's apparently, and I didn't know about this, there's Meccan and Medinan revelations or chapters in the book. And so in the early stages when he was in Mecca uh, with a small community of believers surrounded by the traditional um, polytheist Arab culture, he was much more conciliatory, conciliatory. Um, and less aggressive about talking about what, what should be done to the opponents of, of, the, of his community. Or his followers, and also it wasn't a militarized relationship yet. I don't. No, think. right. So it was a tense, but not not openly hostile. Then, uh, after the flight to Medina, where he Medina. like establishes the Islamic community as a polity, and it is the, you know the beginning of Islamic history, the, the year zero. So they get to Medina and they establish a political community. The um, damn, I forget the name. Not the ulama. That's the community of. Of jurists, the Uma, the Uma, the nation, the nation. Yeah, uh, they establish themselves as a polity, and they're immediately kind of fighting a war with the Meccan polytheists, who were very oppressive towards them, right? And so that's when you get all these passages, the famous passages that people cite all the time about like how you're supposed to be harsh and kill all of them, kill them where you find them, all that kind of stuff. Don't take a Jew as a patron, all these kind of things. Like, well. the Jew thing is important too because it's not just the the Muslim followers of Muhammad versus the Meccans. Other tribes, because this is a tribal society, and there's alliances between different tribes, which are apparently there's like a Jewish tribe that allies with the Muslims and then like betrays them or backs out, and he gets really pissed at that tribe and says a lot of like not so nice things about them. And that tribe was Jewish, but it wasn't kind of as I understand it. These were more tribal political military conflicts than like doctrinal like you're a piece of shit because you believe x yeah absolutely so so when he says so so what uh khalil does is like shows that the mainstream understanding of this he's not only showing the context of the quran but also showing that this is how most muslims throughout history have understood these passages is when he says like Kill all those people. Kill the kill the unbelievers. For example, I'm, I'm not going to bring up these specific passages themselves. But when he says something like that, he's not saying kill all unbelievers. He's talking about a specific group of unbelievers that are literally like coming to attack them. You know what I mean? So you need to like get deep into the context and also the specific like linguistics of it uh, to understand that he's not giving commands that Muslims should kill everyone who's not a Muslim, right? So this becomes because, very because elsewhere. Oh, sorry, go ahead. So so this is going to become very important uh, later on, and then so he shows that the the mainstream idea uh, or understanding of jihad. Wait, so before we move on, yeah. sorry, sorry. Before we move on, I do want to say this. There's another Quranic passage, which is that there's no compulsion in religion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And jurists of jihad have often had to weigh those. Okay, so there's no compulsion in religion. We can't. Does that mean we can't compel other people to be 
our religion, you know, there's verses like if you read the Hebrew Bible or, you know, the the gospels, there's a lot more of this, but like very contradictory verses. If you're just trying to draw up a, what's our policy toward people who aren't in our group, because that wasn't being thought of as categorically as, as it would later be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and just even the term of like Islamic jurists of jihad, that makes it sound like, oh, this is a religion that like has a philosophy of war. Oh, doesn't that make it a religion of war? You need to remember that in the West, we had a jurisprudence of war as well. We had the idea of, of a just war, how to, how to, how to behave in war, use in bellow. We still have laws of war international Yeah, so law. all that kind of stuff. Like, so, so Christianity had jurists of war as well. They just weren't specifically, they just were operating a different register and drawing on some sources that weren't, you know, explicitly religious, but it was still like a religiously inflected philosophy of war. And obviously sec- secular, secular culture has philosophies about violence and just when violence is justified. So Sharia was no different. And he shows that the mainstream idea was was generally, not always, but generally about defensive jihad. And that was what was emphasized much more over the idea of going out in and conquering neighbors. And obviously there was like, there were many periods where the you know, Islamic world was, was expanding and conquering other people. That's absolutely true. Um, it wasn't always conceived of as a holy war or as jihad. Often it was, it was conceived of as a defensive action. I mean, but that's common to lots of expanding empires. The Roman empire often said that we're actually, you know, we're defending ourselves or our allies when they would go and, you know, to like go, yeah, they go invade some country and like kill hundreds of thousands of people. Right. So, and then there's, there's a number of other things. He just, he shows that the, the idea of jihad isn't necessarily, you know, what people say now is, oh, jihad is actually like about an inner struggle. He's not saying that. People being certain like yeah, apologists. Yeah. Uh, yeah for... In Islam, in Muslim apologetics. That's like pretty common. Um, he's not saying that, but there there is an idea of jihad, and it, it often does mean internal struggle, but it also can can refer to war. But they were it was a pretty like the idea was like to moderate in war, and there were all sorts of rules about who you yeah. could kill, and there were very very clear injunctions against killing innocent people, against killing women and children and the elderly unless they were actively fighting against you. Right. And so that was very clear, always the mainstream position. And then he goes on to this in the second section to talk about Osama bin Laden's theory of, of jihad and how he develops that. And, and he shows a lot of different things. Basically, the, the, the basic thing you need to know is that it's like totally aberrant, like it, and it's not at all in line with what the vast majority of Muslims have believed throughout their history. Um, for example, like he looks really closely at bin Laden's declaration of war against the United States, and he makes a number of very kind of controversial statements, right? So he says, his argument is basically that every single American can be considered a hostile enemy because it's a democracy. So anything their rulers do, they are basically responsible for because they voted for them. And secondly, that by the way has been used if, to justify suicide bombings right, in Israel. Okay. And secondly, okay. that by paying taxes, they also can be considered um, hostile enemies that support, actively supports the yeah, military. actively fighting against the Islamic world. And obviously, uh, a lot of his argument is based on um, geo his his reading of of geopolitics, right? So it's not a purely theological thing. He's saying he's he kind of 
gives a very broad idea of retaliation and what kind of retaliation is acceptable under the you know strictures of Sharia and decides that it is his his idea of like fighting a war against America by killing innocent killing civilians women and children and elderly uh, all sorts of uh, all sorts of people um, is justified and basically like no one agree almost no one agreed with him even the Taliban was like well no you shouldn't be fighting against America like they're way over there what you need to be fighting is like the close enemy who's actually threatening you but he he his idea was well they're in the holy lands we can't accept it we need to fight them where they are um so okay so having they the holy land being american troops in yeah Saudi exactly Arabia. so his one of the big turning points was the stationing of american troops and the establishment of american bases in saudi arabia and dur- during the first the gulf war the persian gulf war and that kind of turned him against it and he was actually kind of he was like disappointed he felt betrayed by the americans because obviously the americans and the mujahideen were like on the same side in afghanistan so he was like they they've betrayed us um and he was like disappointed <laughs> you know he was like your fake friends um and so in any case the third section is was the most interesting for me is he shows how all these new atheists they talk about this is what Islam is right so so Osama bin Laden is like the only honest Muslim that's what they would basically say because they say look at these look at these passages in the Quran it says go and kill the unbeliever right so that means that basically Islam says Islam demands that every single Muslim man should go out and kill as many believers as as he can and he should try to kill himself in a suicide attack because martyrdom is so important and martyrdom is celebrated in islam and you hear this also on the not just the atheists but also like the christian right and the the hardcore jewish zionist right that characterization of islam is is very proliferate you know in, in like the neocon on the especially absolutely the farther fringes yeah of yeah for sure. And I mean, there are like big affinities between these guys and neoconservatism, right? Especially they like, take someone like Chris Hitchens. So who's like a big atheist, but he's in, and you know, there's anyways, we don't have to talk about neoconservatism. But so the argument is that like, they're even what their argument is, is even more extreme than what Osama bin Laden said was his idea uh, of jihad, because Osama bin Laden was at pains to to portray what he was doing as a defensive jihad because that was what was acceptable to the vast majority almost all muslims and the idea of aggressive jihad of just like oh you just should go out and constantly kill all unbelievers doesn't make any sense and like that's basically what sam harris claimed in his books on islam and it just doesn't make any sense right because like they're not going to every single place where there's not muslims and killing as many non-muslims as they can it's like there's there's clearly geopolitical influences on it and there's a number of other yeah. reasons why can i, yeah, can I interject ahead. something here um yeah i think that it, it is really funny i feel like living in kansas after 9 11 there was that sense like white people in kansas were like they're all go- they're gonna come kill all of us it's like oh they're not coming here like Al-Qaeda, we're, we're pretty low on their list, I think. It, it is, there's an, an, also an ahistorical reaction in that characterization, which is if all Muslims all the time, forever, were only good Muslims when they killed non-Muslims, then how has this religion existed? It's, it's kind of like my thing with Israel. But how has this religion existed for 1,400 years without periods where they just go and start killing non-Muslims? And that is 
also, by the way, very different than the Islamic conquest, because the Islamic conquest was not about like the mass killing of non-believers. Right. A lot of people don't know this, but for the first few hundred years after the conquest, only the military elites were Muslim, yeah. and most of the people remained um, in North Africa. Most of them were Christian, and the process of the Islamization of those societies, or in Turkey, from different forms of paganism was very gradual yeah. to, to the point the founder of the Ottoman Empire, the Osman, is, I think he's about 1302, his father converted from paganism to Islam. So in Turkey, that's to say that this is um, six, 700 years after the advent of Islam, and Muslims have nominally been in control of these lands, which is to say their military governors are, are Muslim and they're ruling the lands uh, their political laws are derived from Islamic law, but there was never this like, oh, and we're going to also kill every single person who's not Muslim in within this. And obviously not, or the last 1400 years of history. Yeah. And also not to mention the fact that there was, were, there was no such thing as suicide bombing, Islamic suicide bombing until like the seventies. <laughs> so, or even the eighties, I'm not sure, but very, very recent. And so this, this really distorted view of, the idea of, of martyrdom in in Islam is is a big theme too. So right, so they remember like in the in the years after 9/11, where there's this big idea of like in Islam, they promise you that if you, the seventy virgins, like if you kill yourself, and it's like the idea that this this idea of martyrdom is super central to to Islamic thought and the Islamic conduct of war, and it's like. There is an idea. There is a there is an idea that if you are a martyr, then you get to skip the kind of painful judgment that happens, like at the end of at the end of the world, right? But that's not. But it doesn't mean that like being a martyr is so so easy, and you should just go and try and get yourself killed. And he, Muhammad, even you know denounced a Muslim soldier who killed himself after being. Uh, mortally wounded in a battle. So like there's all sorts of injunctions against suicide in Islam. You can't pull a yeah. King Saul. So so there's all sorts of injunctions against suicide in Islam too. So so it's not it's not like basically the the original like people like Osama bin Laden and ISIS pretty definitively are not following the original article. And like the views of Western critics of Islam are like totally distorting it even more. So that's like the pretty convincing case laid out by the book I, I i will just make that i think that like you, you've said stuff like always mainstream all you know i just i mean and i know that you know we're like in podcasts like quick format but of course there are there have been exceptional moments yeah. in islamic history there have been so many islamic political entities polities you know a little you know princedom in like fucking azerbaijan that was ruled for like 20 years by this like one family you know imagine that times like a huge portion of the globe times 1400 years, like there are states and, or, you know, military forces that had alternatives to this. Yeah, view, no, and it, it, like, it things changed but, over time. I mean, like, you, you know, Islamic Spain is seen as this model of, of tolerance and everything, but, you know, in the lifetime of Maimonides, like there was a different group that came in to Spain and took, took control and they were like totally yeah, intolerant. They were, yeah. And they're famously exceptional. But on the other hand, just to, to big up you here, so the kind of uh, the Islamic philosopher that Bin Laden and, and his deputy uh, Ayman al Zawahiri drawn the most is Said Qutb, who was mm-hmm. Egyptian, um, who had been in the Muslim Brotherhood and was jailed for that, and then kind of was like, they're not really real enough. And what Said Qutb himself said is that in his writings I'm familiar with, 
he's like every Muslim. I, I think he's basically arguing that like most Muslims since the time of Muhammad have not been real Muslims. Everyone is fake, and I'm gonna bring us back to the real, but like shit. Protestant Reformation, a little bit of like um, yeah, Protestant Reformation. Like it's all been um, idolatry and falsehood, and I'm. And in his biggest enemy, he said, was the word taqlid. And taqlid is tradition. It's like tradition introduces a bunch of bullshit. And I'm going to get at basically what we might call doctrine, which is like the true strain. So he himself did not say this is what Muslims have been doing for the past 1400 years. He precisely said the opposite. And that's, and that's a big part of the selling point of it, um, is that it's not historically consistent with islamic behavior so to speak yeah interesting yeah the 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 comparison to protestantism is interesting and i and i'm going to bring that up again later but what i wanted to talk about was the first kind of takeaway was about like let's like deepen this for a little bit so we we accept the basic points of khalil's book uh, i think but i want to like kind of apply it more generally to the way we talk about islam and religion and one of the things I was thinking of and, and a question that he talks a lot about in the book is this question of, is Islam a religion of peace, right? So like you're basically, your point of view on Islam since 9-11 has been like how you answer that question, right? Yeah. And your options, like you give your us options the are yes yeah. or no, right? <laughs> so it's either a religion of peace or it's a religion of war. So either this kind of, horrific violence, like we saw in 9-11, is integral. Like the seed of it is contained in the Quran. That's the basic idea. The Quran is what caused 9-11. Or, and then there's also all these other kind of arguments, which is like also the Islamic conquests also like lead to 9-11. Or like Islam is a religion of peace and it's always been a religion of peace. Um, and that's like the only kind of option that apologists for Islam have. And I would say like both me and you would be like lumped in with the Islamic apologists camp. But like, I don't think that's, a, it's kind of like a losing battle to be answering that question. And what we need to do is like interrogate the question itself. So when you look at the question, you just like realize how much like work a lot of the words in that question are doing. Like literally every, every word in that question is like, has all this complex background to it. And, and it's not nearly as simple a question as it might seem like is is islam a religion of peace does that mean is it a religion of peace now was it a religion of peace has it always been so like how do you is there one islam right. that has pertains to all one billion believers and all their different nationalities right. so, and like, then yeah so islam times. how do you define islam is it you know and, and that's the really interesting, how are you defining Islam? And then what does it mean to be a religion of peace, right? Because I think that what they're doing there, what that question is doing is implicitly trying to contrast it. Get us to say that there's no such religion. No, I think what they're trying to do is contrast it with, with Christianity, which they're posit, which it posits as a religion of peace, because it, it's supposedly like inherently pacifistic. Mm. And all wars that mm. Christians have ever fought have been like in the secular realm. Like those had secular causes. They weren't caused yes. by the theology, that, the, like the actual inherent theology of Christianity, right? For, for sure. Although I, I disagree about one point. I think from the new atheist side, I think what they're trying to imply is that what they want to, they want to convict religion of being a force Yes, no, of absolutely. Violence. Yeah. And, and Islam is, a, is the defendant that they want in the docket, that, you know, because of 
basically our racism and a lot of other things, it's a really easy religion to convict. And from that conviction, you can then say, you know, like, yeah, religions are just violent. Let's, let's get rid of them and then we'll all not have any problems anymore, which is like what Chris Hitchens yeah. was saying. But I do also, but I also agree though that like you said a really important thing I want to like highlight it, which is that when we're looking at Christianity, quote unquote, the history of our own in the West, there's everyone's able to see that even though they're religious people who invoke religion, it's really about, you know, territory or, or dynastic succession or whatever economic, you know, material causes. But like we then put on blinders when anyone tries to say that, that that's what's driving like contemporary. Yeah, Japan. no. And also yeah. it's like really important that in the West, our tradition of, of like jurists talking about war and conduct in warfare has been has been conducted based on the tradition of like Roman law. So like a secular uh, origin of law, whereas in Islam, there like wasn't that kind of separation. I think people kind of project the modern division between faith and reason back into the past, whereas I don't think that like, you know, Christian theorists of war, even though they are talking about Roman law, which is, you know, secular, like they wouldn't have seen themselves as like doing something that's not Christian in that moment, right? It was all kind of went together. Yeah, everything, Christ, Christianity yeah. developed everything, if we're talking about the pre-modern. Yeah, exactly. So like the idea is like we fought secular wars and, and they fought they fought holy wars. So in any case, how do we define Islam? That's an important um, question. And I think that well, this is like something that I just want to complain about in general, the way people talk about religion. And I think that it's really evident in the way people like Sam Harris talk about, try to define what Islam is. So so instead of like when there's a passage in the Quran that says, kill the unbelievers, those people, they're oppressing us, right? You keep citing that. I want to be like, everyone, the whole point is there's a bunch of other nice yeah. passages. Right, exactly. So go ahead. Instead of looking at the context of like what he was talking about in the speech and what he meant by the unbelievers, you just take it and you read it in English translation. You have no idea. You completely ignore the tradition, right? The interpretive tradition that has mm. like had a certain kind of understanding of what the meaning of that passage is. And you just say, this is what it means. This is, if you're a Muslim, that means you need to believe in the Quran. And this is what the Quran says. Therefore, any honest Muslim would believe that you need to kill all unbelievers. So it's this method where you go and you say, Islam is this. Islam is a set of beliefs, right? It is a set of things that you have to say you agree to, and either you agree to all of them and you're a Muslim, or you don't, and you're like kind of picking and choosing and, and not being like a real honest dealer, right? And then you kind of gather up these these yeah, abstract you, beliefs. You gather these abstract beliefs and you say each abstract belief is like, okay, I'm going to prove that this is an abstract belief, that that Muslims need to kill um, all unbelievers. And the way you support is by by taking these textual, like these scriptural passages and saying, this, see, this is what it says. It proves it, right? And that is like such a common way of talking about religion in general, right? So even take like Muslim Islamic apologetics. People will say, you know, actually Islam is really feminist. Anyone who says that Islam has problems with like gender and sexism, stuff like that, they're wrong. Actually, if you look at the Quran, Muhammad was a champion for women's rights. And here's a passage where he like praised a woman or like gave her property rights or something like that, right? So it's like taking, like just ignore all the tradition, ignore the way, ignore any kind of complexity in uh, Islamic. Under Find the mirror for the belief that makes you right. most comfortable. 
and then put a passage in front of here's, that mirror. Here's another example yeah. in Christianity. So, so one of my biggest pet peeves is like when people say Jesus was a radical socialist Jew of color who hang, hung out yeah. with sex workers. Who hung out with sex workers, right? So, so, yeah. so let's take, just take the sex worker part. So this is like based on the famous passage where he says, let he, he who is without sin cast the first stone when like a, a, a prostitute is going to be stoned to death, right? So totally divorcing that from any kind of context of like, well, was the prostitute unrepentant? Was she going to continue to do sex work after that? Or was she totally repentant, right? Was his point, like, what was his point? Was his point that sex work is okay, and I approve of that? Um, and if you look at the context of what he's saying about like sinners and everything like that, is is that yes, everyone's a sinner, but everyone needs to repent of their sins and lead an incredibly austere moral lifestyle, right? So they're taking, they're creating this hippie like Jesus out of nothing just by cherry picking, right? So that's the kind of thing that I that I hate, and it's what it happens in both critiques and apologetics for all the different religions, right? Yeah, it, it, it happens that so there's a synagogue here in LA called Ikar, and me and this other friend of mine who who grew up uh, like with tr- traditional Jewish families, you know, we go there and they're just like Judaism, the Torah, it's just all radical feminist, nasty yeah, woman, yeah. you know, like bitch magazine, and 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 it's like, well, I think there's actually some really unsavory things in the Torah, and we have to like. You know, struggle with that and but they just like they're trying to get everyone to feel good about religion but instead of bringing people into what religion is is a complex historical phenomenon that also has beliefs but even if you don't believe the beliefs you have to at least acknowledge its historical complexity yeah. right and what they're trying to do is say you know instead of entering the forest of that complexity i'm just going to stay right where i am with all the beliefs that i have and then I'm gonna like slap, like find a quotation in a in a in a sacred scripture and slap that label on myself. So that instead of just being like a lame secular liberal person, I'm like a radical Jesus or radical Muslim, yeah, you know, transparent show writer Jew. But I think that I mean, basically, everything we're saying now, I think, also applies to what I was trying to say before about Zionism. Okay, you yeah. know that like absolutely. Can I say one thing really quick? There's a there's a claim for for a lot yeah. of like non-Zionist Jews that. They say, well, you know, Zionism is actually totally divorced. It has no relationship to Judaism, the religion, right? And so Judaism, yeah. Judaism is this pure. Yeah, and thing. it's like not focused on recreating the Jewish state and like actually like, you know, it's more like Ecclesiastes and stuff like that. And it's like ignore and Job. And it's like ignoring the fact that Ecclesiastes and Job are like not very representative of the rest of the Bible, even, not to mention the like Jewish the Talmud people. and the whole tradition of of Jewish thought. They're like outliers. They're important, yeah, but they're outliers, yeah. right? And 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 then ignoring the fact that like generations after generations of diaspora Jews have like been pretty explicit in their desire to reestablish <laughs> um the the kingdom of Israel, right? And it's like that's something well, they only prayed for it three times a day yeah. for 2,000 so, years. So, like, that's yeah. that's something that, you know, Jews who are not Zionists like me, for example, like, need to reckon with. We need to not just try to erase it by, like, creating this definition of Judaism using these fraudulent, you know, interpretive methods. Well, it's interesting you call them fraudulent. I mean, I think it's it's just at a minimum that they're decontextualized because the re- – let's even take something that's not political, mm-hmm. just belief – People pick Ecclesiastes and Job because those texts, they feel very modern, 
because they struggle with belief. Yeah, that's why they're my um, favorite. They're my favorite books in the Bible too. But that doesn't mean I think they're the most important ones for defining what Judaism is. You know? Yeah. yeah well, what, what I would say is is that rather you know people say, see, Judaism's not actually about believing; it's about questioning and blah blah blah. But the reason those books got included in the canon that became the Bible, the reason they're so potent, is because they existed in a world of yeah. belief. They lose their potency if no one believes anything. Then there's nothing potent about being. Ecclesiastes. Yeah. It, 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 its charge and its friction and its frisson, you know, comes from the fact that it's from a world of believers. And even if one themselves contemporarily is not a believer, that's at least when you're reaching back into something that came from a previous time, acknowledge the, I don't know if it's ontology of, in this case, of belief, you know, that it, it was circulated by and amongst believers, not by and amongst yeah, like models, yeah, exactly. You know? And like it, yeah. And like a religion isn't this. So here's my like my main thesis statement on the whole thing. Take like away. this is this. It's a combination of things. This is coming from this way of understanding a religion as like a set of of doctrines, a set of beliefs that like all believers have to accept. You say you yes, say or, yes no, or no, and that, the that they're based on, and you you have like your citations needed, right? Your receipts for these beliefs, and it's like single passages. There's two. <laughs> There's two sources of that kind of understanding. One of them is just simply laziness and like dishonesty um, in the way people are are looking at it. So ignorance, like yeah. But then there's yeah. another source of that, I think, which is which is secularism and the secular gaze on religion as an object, right? So there's like there's it's kind of a bifurcation um, in the way secular the secular. Let me just like abstract it and personify it. Like the secular gaze sees religion. So like. On the one hand, it can be an object of study. So you like look at it and you see that there's all these kind of, there's all this diversity of belief within a religious tradition over time. And you can accept that and say, this is still like a historically coherent thing, this religion, right? But when the secular gaze looks at the believer in a religion or the member of a religious group, it's, it is in this very simplistic, you believe this, this, and this. And it is these are based on a direct kind of interpretation of the original scripture, right? Ignoring the tradition of interpretation. It's like it's the it's the interaction between like an individual su subject who's a believer and like the Bible or the Quran or whatever. Right. And so I think that that has to do this kind of impoverished view of religion has to do with like the sources of secularism and like the two things that secularism comes from are two very important sources are on the one hand, this kind of like Northern European liberal Protestantism, where like religion was reduced to mm -hmm. this thing was like, oh, you're an individual sus subject, you decide what you believe, you base it on reading the original Bible, right? Get rid of all this, these layers of, in of interpretation between you and the original text. Just like yeah. sit down with Sola your scriptura, and... right? And I was trying yeah. to pick an East German city and it couldn't come um, fast enough. And then the second source is like French, like French laicism, right? So the anti-clerical kind of tradition in more Catholic countries where you're like openly hostile to this whole idea of like traditions of interpretation, right? And the institutions of of organized religion. So you like where's that hostility? It come comes from? from like things like the French Revolution or the Enlightenment, where they saw the, the Catholic establishment uh, and clerics as like forces of darkness and reaction. Mm. And then and then every religion is the bad priests. Like you can take out Catholicism and put Islam into that slot or yeah, Judaism exactly. or 
Yeah, you know, the priests are yeah. the priests are charlatans just like like this is something that like enlightenment people would do. It's like, yeah, priests are char- like, you know, Jesus was just as much of, of a charlatan as Muhammad was, and we all know how how bad he was. You know what I mean? So oh, man. that would be like a, that would be a very radical <laughs> that was like a very radical enlightenment view. But in any case, but I feel like there's also there's a positive version too that's that's equally problematic, which is the person. I mean, it's similar to what we were saying earlier, but the person who's like, like I'm thinking of a white Buddhist mm-hmm. that I know, you know, who's just like Buddhism. Buddhism is a religion of peace. The all you Abrahamic religions are fucking really violent, but these Eastern religions, you know, in this case, Buddhism is a religion of peace. And I'm like, oh yeah, but like, what about the yeah. genocide in Myanmar and like a bunch of other shit? And it's like, no, well, they they just don't get it. Right. These people you who know? have been Buddhist so, for millennia, like, don't get it. Like me, this Western subject who has chosen it. So, but it raises a big, uh, an interesting problem, though. It's a really explosive problem. It's not just in religion, which is that what do you do with the subject who who you know genealogically comes from that tradition? So like the the buddhist general in myanmar or maybe a guy in france who you know the guys in france who did the charlie hebdo thing didn't really have like great islamic educations they like basically learned about it from some like yeah dude in prison and they met with this other kind of radical guy in this park that you know it wasn't the islam of the quran it was a different islam but they believed that it was the true islam and and obviously it was more than just two or three guys because you have you know thousands of Muslims who traveled from Europe and North Africa and all over the world to join ISIS, what do we do with their beliefs? Do we say they don't get it or they're ahistorical or, you know, because like once it's internalized, you know, this question of how do you say that they're not authentic without saying that they're the true authentic? It's, it's, yeah, it is a vexing question. And I think that like there, there's, there's a lot of ways to approach it, but I want to talk about more. Yeah, this idea of being a member of a religious community, um, particularly like a minority religious community in a secular, in the secular West, and like how do you deal with these critiques of your religion? So I think of like someone like Mehdi Hassan, who has like been a very prominent proponent of the argument that like ISIS is not Islamic at all because of the, exactly the reasons you were saying, like these people don't understand Islam. They don't understand Islamic doctrine. They're wrong. Therefore, it's not Islamic. And I do think that there has to be a more nuanced understanding of that question. Yeah, you know, is is Islam a religion of peace? And then are like what is the relationship between, you know, Islamic terrorists and Islam itself, which like accepts that these religions are like very complex. Like not only so there's A, the complexity of the original texts themselves. And then B, there's a complexity of the the interpretive tradition as well, right? And so these all these kinds of inputs are big enough and thick enough to sustain multiple different interpretations at any given time. And you might say it's totally invalid, and I think like there's there's obviously lots of reasons for saying that that like the the Islam of ISIS is like totally invalid, and it, and it bears no it, like it bears no resemblance to most of the Islam that has historically existed. Historically but that doesn't existed. mean it doesn't ha- have some genealogical link to Islam and even you know parts of the Quran. You know what I mean? It's like take a take a like less explosive example, like just like the Protestant Reformation and the question in the Protestant Reformation was, does the, do you get saved, do you get salvation by grace alone, just by God giving it to you? 
or do you um, attain salvation through like a combination of God's grace and your own works, like the merit that you build up through through your good deeds? And Luther was able to make a very compelling argument based on not only like his his reading of the scripture, but like theology and rational philosophy even to say that it's only grace that, that gets you saved. But then the Catholic Church also was able to point to many other passages in the Bible that made it very clear that like belief or faith without works is empty, right? And that like you have to do good works um, in order to be saved. So the the Bible itself was capable of sustaining two different interpretive traditions that were like totally in in disagreement with one another. Yeah. I mean well the, the the Hebrew Bible sustained an interpretive tradition that is called Christianity. Yes. It's one tradition <laughs> of interpreting the Hebrew Bible. A different tradition led to rabbinic Judaism, which is what you know most modern Jews are. So yeah, I, I, I think that So what I'm wondering is like so so that kind of idea is is coming from like the secular view of religion as like an object of study, right? So you can observe it from outside and like understand that there's like multiple valid, maybe not equally valid, but like multiple traditions that are based on the same texts and are you know equally part of this thing we're calling by the name of one religion right and i'm wondering if like that kind of acknowledgement of complexity and it, like embodiedness and historicity can be transferred into like the kind of idea of like being a religious person in a secular society like could you ask a muslim you know, is religion like what's the relationship between uh, between violence and violence and Islam? And like, could they give an answer that like draws on their own belief, but isn't requiring them to say that like these beliefs are like speaking yeah. for to uh, to is- Islam as like a monolithic kind of just almost like historical? Very, yeah, I have a very personal answer to that. Yeah, which is like I'm I'm not just a secular Jew. I'm a believer. I mean, I'm not a secular Jew. I'm a, I'm a believing Jew. Mm-hmm. And I I wrestle with this all the time, and I think you know there's there's two angles at it. For one thing, you know I I, I don't pray. There's like a, a liturgy that religious Jews pray three times a day. And when I was at my most observant, I did it once a day, and now I don't do it. But like there was like a line, and it comes from Psalms that it's like Rabot Machshavot Belev Ish Vatzat Adonai Dakum, which means there's many you know multiple are the thoughts in the heart of man. But the counsel of God, that is what will stand and endure. And I was thinking, I would sometimes when I was younger and I was praying, I would think, you know, I would think about like the occupation and the settlers. And I would think, God, you know, they, they just have these different plans, but I understand the Torah correctly and know that the occupation is wrong and that's what will stand. And then I realized that the real place to really go as a believer is to be like, I might be wrong. And they might be right. But nonetheless, this is my belief. And, you know, I can believe it for myself, but I have to wrestle with the fact that there's people drawing on the very same tradition. I mean, even look in in Israel, like there's the ultra-Orthodox who think that the existence of the Israeli state is a heresy. And they're called the national religious or like the settlers who the state is like almost a messianic divine entity to them. Yeah. And they they both think that they got the true sauce. And I think maybe a better way to approach it is let's cut the shit and let's just say, start with what do you not like? What's the thing that makes you uncomfortable? And so with Islam, we're talking about terrorism. With Judaism, maybe we're talking about occupation, dispossession. We don't like that shit. And we want to either say that that thing we don't like 
has nothing to do with this religion because we like the religion, or that it comes from the religion because we we want to denigrate the religion or the tradition. It could be a political, philosophical tradition, whatever. You know? Right, right. Yeah. And I think it just comes down to like, we, and this is, to me, this kind of comes from like dialectics and Adorno and Said and stuff. We're all part of traditions that have counterpoints that make us very, very uncomfortable. Yes. And there's no point where you get to fully extract yourself and have your and draw the tradition to where you want it to be and not have to wrestle with the fact that other people have drawn it somewhere else. Even if they're a minority, even if they're a recent thing, like, and maybe it's not because of the religion, maybe they're doing it for social or political or economic reasons, but you got to wrestle with those things. Yeah. Absolutely. And I do think that there is kind of a, one model I think of that like does that is the idea of like Christian ecumenism, where you're like saying like, look, we're all, we're all Christians and we believe different things and we have different traditions of interpreting these things, but they're all kind of share, they, they have certain, you focus on like the shared aspects of it, right? But I think, yeah, you're right. But I still don't like accept that those are the two options. Like if you like the if you like the religion, but don't like what other people are doing in the name of the religion, you shouldn't have to choose between A and B and saying like, that's the, that's actually the core of the religion. So I have to reject it or yeah. it has nothing yeah, to do. Yeah, I'm saying you have to wrestle. Yeah. You have to keep, you're in relation. You're always in relation to fellow believers or just, you know, history. We're all, you know, there's no extraction from history. Yeah. That reminds me of my bar mitzvah, which was like very much in keeping with this fraudulent view of, of religion that it's I thought, which is like, you take, you take, you take, like take, you, for your bar mitzvah you take like a single you know passage from the torah and you're like interpret it but like you don't do it i mean at, at my synagogue you're not supposed to do it like based on any tradition of interpretation by other jews you're just supposed to like think about it and like how does this apply to my life right and my passage by the way that would be so not kosher in the orthodox yeah of course right? you're not it's allowed to do that but like it, i'm talking about liberal you know reform judaism which is based on uh liberal protestantism right or modeled in in important ways on liberal protestantism which is like as i'm arguing the source of this kind of view of religion mm -hmm. and so my my portion my torah portion was like literally jacob wrestling with the angel so maybe that's actually the meaning <laughs> so i'm going to do the bad thing and i said maybe that's the meaning of jacob wrestling with the angel is wrestling with these kinds of problems of like other, you know, of the complexity of the religious tradition you find yourself in and the fact that other people who you disagree with lay claim to it. So yeah, so I, I, I wanted to wrap up by saying I actually wrote to Muhammad, so I can call him Muhammad now because he, he asked me to call him Muhammad. Oh, the author. The you author. should say his last yes, name. Yes, I wrote to Muhammad Khalil. I called him Professor Khalil. The professor of Michigan State, yes. everyone, not the, not the prophet. Of and then he wrote back and said, please call me Muhammad. So that's why I'm calling him by his first name now. Um, and asked him basically about all this stuff and like the idea of like how, how can a member of a religious community like communicate his or her understanding of religion in a more complex way that's acknowledging the the complexities of it. And so I'm going to read some of his response just because I think it, cool. it, it was it was interesting, but I, I don't think he quite like I, 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 I don't know if I communicated what I wanted to say as well as I could have, but here was part of his response. The way I approach this matter is as follows. As a professor, I always stress the great diversity within Islam. I tell my students, I hope you'll be frustrated by the end of the semester because we tend to prefer black and white over gray. So he's trying to teach them the gray. Now, as a believer, I affirm some aspects of this diversity, recognizing that I don't have all the answers and that multiple approaches can be correct, and I reject other aspects. I don't see why it would be a problem in a Western secular society to say that Islam is not a monolith and that as a believer, I and most Muslims reject certain interpretations. 
e.g. those that justify terrorism, and can actually show how they stray from the prevailing interpretations and original sources. Uh, think, think of bin Laden misquoting al-Qurtubi, for example. To my mind, it is, necessary, it is necessary to insist on this kind of nuance in public Western discourse. So, I mean, what he was saying, I think he's like kind of touching on a lot of what we just talked about. He's like, well, I don't see why it would be a problem. I do think it's like hard because there's the fact that like people don't really listen or want to embrace that kind of nuance. But I do think, and I might disagree with him on this point, that like there is a problem. There is something within secularism that like would have trouble comprehending what you're saying when you say, well, mm-hmm. Islam is diverse. I'm a believer. I accept some of it, but not all of it. But I know that I don't have all the answers. Like that wouldn't be a, that would be a like an unacceptable answer to someone like Richard Dawkins, who's like, no, you have beliefs and you have to prove why you believe, like why you believe them and you have to prove that they're valid. And otherwise I don't accept it. You know what I mean? But that's what he said, and I thought it was I thought it was interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah. Okay, so I great. Go ahead. Great combo. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, we're gonna wrap it up. It was enjoyable. I'm gonna have to edit this down. It was a very long conversation, but yeah, fun. I mean, like, well, we can stop recording, but I'm gonna ask you a question. Okay. Well, till next time, everyone. Bye. So long.